Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem, as well the delights, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward of all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Matt. How are we doing? We doing good this morning? Both Joby and Scotty have full bowls of oatmeal. Um, I don't know if you saw that, so I know they're doing good this morning. Can I have a bite? Right now. Uh, Just kidding. Um, Let's pray together. Spirit of God, come and speak to your people. If you don't come, if you don't speak to us, if we don't catch a glimpse of who you are in your heart and your love, then this is a a sweet club, but not one that uh, might make it far in in these days to come. But if you are with us, and we are with you, then we've got a shot. Amen. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes together. Every time I say Ecclesiastes, I feel like I'm saying it wrong, but I think I'm saying it right In the past couple of weeks, Dan has been taking us through the intro to Ecclesiastes, basically telling, hey, this is what the book is about. You've got our mascot, who most of the time we hear from, he's talking. He's sort of this character that we can find ourselves relating to. Wise, old, but maybe a little bitter. Koheleth, or did we land on Kohelet? I don't know which It is Koheleth, Koheleth. We'll just keep on going back and forth for the next six months. But the teacher tells of the ultimate frustration in attempting to understand, find meaning, to grasp the meaning of life. He says it's Hevel. Say Hevel. Hevel. That's that word meaningless. It's a key phrase in this text that we're reading through. It's a word picture. It kind of literally means smoke. You can see it. You can smell it. You can even kind of taste it like a smoked uh, apple bacon or something like that. I had that yesterday. It was delicious. But it is hard, if not impossible, to grasp. 
Last week, Dan laid out for us the ways in which humans attempt to navigate this mystery of life. He gave us a broad overview of four philosophies, existentialism, hedonism, nihilism, and stoicism. And maybe you found yourselves in community last week talking about those things in which you most found yourself resonating with. We all kind of have a bend towards this because we, in small ways we've been formed by the world and by the narratives around us. We find ourselves in at least one of those things. I find myself probably with stoicism, and there are different phrases that lead us in that place. My phrase that kind of relates to stoicism for me is, it is what it is. When bad things happen, that's kind of what comes to my mind first. It is what it is, man. In a shallow reading of Ecclesiastes, you might conclude that the teacher agrees wholeheartedly with some of these philosophies. He doesn't. He doesn't necessarily. He thinks that these efforts for understanding the world are, are weak in the end, that they ultimately fail us. A healthy reminder as we listen to the words of the teachers, these few moments that we spend together once a week are set against the backdrop of other teachings that make up the bulk of our time. We find ourselves here on a Sunday morning for maybe two hours, and it's great and it's beautiful and it's good, but all week long, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you're inundated with a whole load of other teachings a whole load of other narratives that are coming for you. They want your time. They want your attention. They want your life. They want you to be devoted to their teachings. It's not as, you know, obvious, but it's there. We are constantly inundated with teachings and tutorials on how to take hold of the good life. Teachings from the world. The formation of the world filtered through our base compulsions. And we'll keep on going back to that word this morning, compulsions. It's kind of key to something we're going to be hearing about. Our compulsions which come from our flesh. And at the start of this text, as a teacher recounts his foolish, by his own account, exploration of pleasure, he refutes a false teaching that is core to the human struggle. I think it's up on the text. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. I want to know what the good life is. But quickly, that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I, che I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. He's pretty quick to summarize the findings of his experiment. The teacher challenges a core tenant of a malformed humanity who would admonish the world to follow the eyes of your heart. Or say, man, if it looks good, it sounds good, it feels good, it must be good. And he says, actually, this will leave you empty in the end. And I've, I've followed that that. that path to the end. This problem, this lie that we've been told, it starts all the way back in the garden. Genesis 3, when Eve saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye, as the serpent says, huh, you know, you've got this beautiful garden, you've got God walking with you in the cool of the day, but does he really want what's best for you? I mean, he said not to eat this, and look, it looks good. 
if it looks good, then it must be good. And Eve sees that it's pleasing to the eye. She partakes. This is an ancient problem. Instead of trusting the intent of God's heart, we trust our socially and biologically informed compulsions. It's the original lie, a deceptive theology. In his book, Bad Religion, writer and religious teacher Ross Duthat, I don't know if that's how you say his name, but I don't know. Ross do this, Ross do that, I don't know. Describes, he, he describes our new age God within theology as a faith that is at once cosmopolitan and comforting, promising all the pleasures of exoticism without any of the pain. A mystical pantheism in which God is an experience rather than a person. What little guidance there is in this experience often amounts to, again, if it feels good, just go ahead and do it. But the teacher, Koheleth, says that these are just distractions from reality, a form of madness. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. He doesn't describe here a pure or eternal form of joy in his laughter, but rather a foolish, ignorant joy. It's like if your house was burning down around you and you just were overcome with madness and you just started laughing instead of trying to escape the fire. I'm just going to distract myself with laughter or kind of what we do all the time, which is to distract ourselves from the fire that's all around us. Oh, man, I'm experiencing this deep pain in my life. I should probably go, you know, talk to someone or pray or see a therapist. But you know what's fire? Uh, the GOAT app. I'm going to look at some shoes or whatever. Instagram. That's the easy one. I didn't want to reach for the easy one. The teacher spends his time following this theology to its end. The theology of the God within. If it feels good, then it must be. And he finds it to be meaningless. This is, man, we've been told this over and over again. If you come to Neighbors any amount of times, you've probably heard something like this before. And if information that we're giving you over and over again was the key to transformation, that's almost all we need to hear this morning. Don't chase after fleeting pleasure. All right, time for brunch. But sadly, that's not the way that we work as humans. And the teacher finds himself even in his wisdom, which is interesting because he's not saying I was making the right wise decision. He's saying I just continue to pay attention to what I was doing. Even as he paid attention to what he was doing as he sought out pleasure, he said this, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He basically, in this time of his life that he's recounting, he said, whatever I saw, whatever I wanted, I went for. 
and I got it. He goes on again to say that uh, that leaves that leaves him empty. But this is the way that the world and our lives train us. This is an ancient human problem. Our innate, subconscious, habitual practice is the grind for more, more pleasure, more aesthetic, more career, more sex, more food, more dopamine, more land, more degrees, more congregants, more listeners, more friends, more novelty, more. Whatever I can do to accumulate more and build this castle around myself, maybe I'll find myself finally satisfied and safe from the world that would seek to harm me. And then you end up being eaten from the inside out. Funny story. Um, when I was 11 years old, how many of you can even remember being 11? Do you remember that mindset? Um, it was an interesting one for me because I was coming of age. My voice was changing. Other things were changing. And that year of my life, I decided to read the whole Bible. And here's the funny thing about uh, growing up in a religious household is you grow up in a religious household, but you're also very American. And so I, I would uh, read the Bible, and I did like the Bible in a year thing, and I read the whole thing. Didn't understand any of it, by the way. I was just like, I'm just going to read this. And I think it was, part of it was like, I'm going to make my parents proud. And then I read it, and they're like, good job. And, uh, and that was it. Um, and so, I, you know what? I was like, I'm going to read another Bible. And so I decided one day, what's that old channel? What's that channel called? There's a channel on TV. And anyways, oh, it's the TNT. It's the one where they play all the action movies all the time, no matter what. It's just like explosion, explosion, explosion. And they're playing all the James Bond movies. And for some reason, my whole family was away. My parents were gone. My brothers were gone. I don't know why I was home by myself. Or maybe it just felt like I was by myself because I was in the world of James Bond. All 20,000 movies. I don't know how many there are, but I was in all of them. And so I had this Bible, the regular Bible, and then I had the James Bond Bible. And I was like, this guy is cool. I was like, I, you know, my parents, you know, they taught me in the Bible. They, you know, they told me that I'm supposed to maybe eventually end up with one woman. But James Bond says, hello, Lassie. I don't know. He says whatever he says. The posthumously canceled Sean Connery. Whatever he said, I was just like enamored by that. And then I kind of went back into the Bible and I was reading all these characters that I liked as well. And I was like, you know what? They actually have multiple wives for some reason as well. If you want to talk about that, uh, email Dan. Um, <laughs> sorry, Dan. Um, but, you know, these, these things combined in my 11-year-old brain led me to a brilliant idea. And I, was, um, I went to an all-black school, which is a fancy way of saying uh, my brothers were black and I was homeschooled. So, um, so I, we... <laughs> Every once in a while, homeschooled kids, they get together and they do something called a co-op. And so you got all these different characters and people there, a lot of people that like churn butter and wear their skirts down to their uh, feet. And it was awesome and it was amazing. But there was these three girls and they're like the popular girls. And I was like, oh, now is my time. <laughs> my mom reminded me, I didn't even remember this story. My mom reminded me of this story. And as the world had taught me, I was like, I think I'm going to shoot my shot. But not with just one of them. And I think uh, and humor being my defense mechanism, as it is even now today, I was like, maybe I'll say it in a funny way. 
so that, you know, if I get rejected, it was just a joke. Ha ha. And so I approached them with all the swagger of a posthumously canceled Sean Connery. And I said, ladies, I was wondering if uh, the three of you would like to be my concubines. <laughs> I said those words out of my mouth. And the reason I remember it and the reason my mother remembers it is because those girls laughed at me and then they went and immediately told on me and I got grounded for a week. And yeah, so that's what happens when you're homeschooled and by yourself. And A funny story to illustrate the idea that the world is going to teach you, if not filtered through the way of Jesus, that more is better. You know... There was actually one of those girls that I actually kind of liked, that I could have been like, hey, just you, maybe one to go. But no, I had to go more, 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 and, you know, make a joke of the whole thing. Regret. No, no regret. Um, Koheleth finds himself doing the same thing. More, more, more. I undertook great projects. I built for myself houses and vineyards, and I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves and flourishing trees. I basically made this garden for myself. In the beginning, we get kicked out. We get kicked out because we say, God, your way, not enough. I don't know if you really want what's good for me. And so, so that we wouldn't corrupt and destroy that sacred place, God says, okay, leave this place. You're not allowed back here. But even then, he, he continues to walk and watch over those people. But ever since then, we've been trying to recreate our own gardens. And what this character here is a pretty ambiguous character. A lot of um, church people like to just say this is Solomon, that Quahelet is Solomon, because there are certain things that seem to resonate with what Solomon did. Oh, I built a great house for myself. I was the greatest ruler in all Jerusalem. I was wise. You have all those things. But who knows if that's true. But the teacher emulates or echoes Solomon, and not just Solomon's uh, wisdom, but also his mistakes, his accumulation of more, his sexual mistakes. He had a huge harem and attempts to recreate his own version of the garden, trying to expand the playground of his flesh. Despite knowing how this story ends, despite the fact that Koheleth tells us this morning, like it leaves you empty, some of you will still find yourself leaving this place and having that nagging sense that there's something missing in your life and you will attempt to fill it with things. We all tend towards this project of expansion, the expansion of the playground of the flesh. And here's the problem. Here's another problem. Beyond the fact that it just leaves us empty, this project cannot happen without using and dehumanizing others. Hear me this morning. There is no version of self-expansion that ends without someone else being heard. Let's use as an example the greatest self-expansion project on the face of the earth. The pursuit of happiness. Sounds good. Sounds great. The American experiment. Like, okay, life. 
liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. And, we, and we'll take those terms and we'll define exactly what that means. That means that for this specific group of people, we want to give to them every opportunity towards life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But in this experiment, no empire in the history of the world, not just this empire, has ever been built on the back of willing and happy participants. It's just not true. If you look back through the annals of history, you'll see it again and again and again. In order to gain and attain more power, people have to step upwards on the backs of others. And in this country, in our pursuit of happiness, we, it becomes our original sin, the gaping wound of a nation, slavery. There's been great victory and resilience in this story. But often those stories still haunt our present day. It can serve this morning as a reminder today of what a malformed garden looks like. Here's what they look like. They look beautiful. Take a look at this. That, that is objectively beautiful. A beautiful garden. The pillars of the house. The railing on the top, the way the trees cascade over top, the grass, it's just like perfect. And yet for, you know, if you've seen most movies, that does not invoke an image of beauty only, but the history of what happened in those beautiful places, a malformed garden. That place doesn't happen, doesn't work, isn't functioning without the lashes on the back of a people based on the color of their skin. This is just our American story. It, it manifests itself in different ways all around the world. Class, economic status, whether you're, or, or sex, gender. In other places, if you're a woman or a child, you are an object. But this is what we do. We attempt to build our own gardens, and they end up being malformed. You can take the picture down. They end up being malformed. This is just an example. Of course, I mean, I hope none of you are like, I grew up there. Um, that's my parents' house. Um, <laughs> dear God. Um, defense mechanism. Um, we attempt to build our own gardens. And following with the flesh, we find ourselves standing on the backs of others. Have you noticed that recently in, in, in history and in, in the digital space, we begin to label any personal challenge to our fleeting pleasure as toxic or triggering? I'm not talking about real trauma here because there is real trauma. Hear my heart. There's, there's some of us here that have experienced real deep wounding at the hands of others. And there's healing for you here this morning. We'll get there. But in many cases, our society has reduced these once extreme events into anything and everything that stands opposite the building of our malformed gardens. If you get in the way of my temporary happiness or pleasure, you are toxic. You've, you've triggered me. In this subtle dehumanization, 
dehumanization of others, where we say, you're not actually a human person across from me. You're just an obstacle in the way of my happiness. We dehumanize others. And in that, we actually lose a part of our own souls. Here, in that, in that image, we should... That, that's people losing a part of their own souls, devaluing their own humanity by stepping on the backs of others because that's not what it means to be human. And then the scripture says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It, fe- it might feel like to us that we're so far from the lifestyle that the teacher exposes here or even in our own lives, what, what I shared. But, but when we take a stock of our own affluence and our own access to basically anything we want in the whole world, we realize that in some ways we may be in an even more perilous situation. Even the poor have access to the digital harem. Like, it's just, it's here. It's on, your, it's on your iPad. It's on your phone. It's like, man, if I, whatever I want in a moment, it's, it's actually kind of insane that at any moment you could want almost anything in the world and you can open up Amazon and your phone and click it and in a couple of hours it'll be at your doorstep. We're talking about the teacher and how basically he, you know, he had everything he wanted. We have much the same much the same. So what's the answer to all of this emptiness? Let's turn the page forward for a moment. A couple of hundred years uh, forward to another teacher. And a crowd pressed all around him under the hot eastern sun. Close your eyes for a minute. Imagine this. Get there. The hot eastern sun pressing all around you and and bodies and there's people and they're looking out to a point where somebody is teaching and talking and, and there's this altercation that's happening. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and goods. And then I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Where will those things go? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This teacher, a couple hundred years moved from Koheleth, is actually reverberating the words of Koheleth. Uh, you could store up all these goods for yourself. You could be rich in this life and empty in the next. This teacher is obviously pretty obsessed with uh, the teacher that we're sitting up, the mascot that we're sitting under. So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. So what does it mean to be rich towards God today? How do we do this? 
we know how the world forms us, and what does it form us to? And here we have this word, and if, you, you know, if you're taking notes, which you know, I hope you are, the world forms us towards our compulsions. We talked about that. The accumulation of more. Like if we could just grasp more and more and more that we finally find satisfaction. This can come from any part of our lives. It can come from a, even the things that don't seem like they're bad. It could come from good things. Oh, if I could just get one more church event in. If I could just get one more drink one more paycheck, one more guy, one more girl, one more weekend getaway, one more degree, one more therapy session, whatever it might be. These are not bad things, but to be rich in anything is to make it the true substance of your life. Let me say that again. To be rich in anything is to make that thing the true substance of your life. We cannot allow our compulsions to be the substance of our lives. However harmless they are, it will leave us empty. Instead, this is the, the invitation of the Father this morning and the words of the teacher from thousands of years ago and another teacher a couple hundred years removed a thousand years from. We must be rich towards God. And the beauty today is this. God is not distant or holding us at arm's length. The Father offers himself as the very substance of our lives this morning. The aforementioned uh, teacher, uh, whose name was Yeshua, Mashiach, Emmanuel, Jesus, had a practice for connecting and accepting the offer of the Father. This was the practice of solitude. And I know some of you are guys like, Every time Shua gets up, he starts talking about solitude and being quiet, and he never shuts up. So what's that? Listen, I, I get it. We hear about it, but here's my question. How many of you, since we've talked about silence, and there's no shame in this, because I, same answer for me. How many of you, since we've talked about silence and solitude and Sabbath, now have a rich and deep and constant practice of all of those things? Show of hands. Yes, me too. Because, because the reason we find ourselves in that place is because the pull of the world is so strong. It's so strong. It is not easy to find yourself every day, even if it's like 10 minutes a day, saying, I'm going to sit with God. And honestly, y'all, like, there, it seems like there's a lot of things we need to do in this life, but um, I, was, I just recently went out to the mountains, and I'll, I'll say something about that, but I was reading this book by Henry Nouwen, and he went to see Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, and she says, oh, yeah, I mean, your whole Christian life could basically be made up of spend one hour a day with God and don't do anything you know to be wrong, and you'll probably be good. Like, if you just for one hour a day could get before God and go, oh, God, you're good. God, you're amazing. God, you're kind. I love you. You love me? Oh, that's great. I love that. And, and then when you're faced with the option of making the wrong decision or the right decision, and I mean when it comes to sin specifically that you know to be wrong, you'd probably do pretty good, but usually we can't even do that because the pull of the world is so strong. 
And now you've got a God in your pocket whispering to you, even now. Some of you have felt it, even as you're sitting here, saying, oh gosh, this guy's, this guy's talking about the spirit of letting go of these, these digital gods that hold us. Another one, your, your ring alert, calling to you over and over again. But in solitude, we find ourselves letting go of those compulsions. Henry Nouwen says this, solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggles against the compulsion of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as a substance of the new self. Maybe the reason we keep on losing the battle to just get alone with God is that we have not taken a set-apart, very specific, on-purpose time to go and fight it. You wake up tomorrow, and you have work, and you have all these things, but man, that's not a good place to fight. You can't necessarily fight while you're sitting at your desk or while you're doing schoolwork. You can't fight necessarily in the same way that you would while you're washing dishes, all the things. Those, those things you can pray you can bow yourselves before God, but if you don't get a specific time in your life where you're saying, I'm just going to devote these 10 minutes to the creator of the universe that is calling out to me, you'll find yourself wanting because you need to struggle with God. You need God to be able to open up your heart and get in there and say, man, that thing is, that's, that's a little interesting. That's interesting. I still love you. I still love you. Here's peace. Here's patience. Here's kindness. Here's the very fruit of my spirit. Let me replace the compulsion of your heart with the fruit of the spirit and the very substance of my being, then we won't change. And we'll end up just like our neighbors, anxious, accumulating goods, empty. This past week, I went out to be alone with God. And I'm saying this not, please hear me. I'm not saying this as a judgment to anyone because this is me. Like I just recently, this past week, went out and I got an Airbnb and I sat there with nothing. <laughs> and it was the worst. I sat, actually, I brought a book because Dan said, hey, bring a book this time because you're going to go crazy. It's your first time doing this. And Dan has been telling me to do this for months. And I was like, okay, Pastor Dan. I never call him Pastor Dan, but Dan, he felt more like Pastor Dan in that moment. I was like, okay, Pastor Dan, I'll, I'll do it the Airbnb. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to bring Henry Nowen and Bono. I brought his autobiography. And I'm going to sit there, but most of the time, I'm just going to be quiet and listen. And it was so difficult. But I was doing it to strip the false self because I found myself a couple weeks ago just on the edge. Angry. Broken down. Like leading worship for you guys and being like, I don't even know if I believe a single word that I'm saying because I felt so far from the heart of God and I felt so close to this other God in my pocket. I felt far, far from the halls of heaven. But I went out there to get alone with God and allow him to strip the false self, to struggle with my own compulsions of anger and lust and aesthetic, to surrender my malformed garden and though it was boring and difficult, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. 
Because there I found, like, oh, man, oh, wait, I actually am more of a mess than even I thought. And there was God in that I had no mask to wear. I felt, I felt very naked. And God offering himself to me. Let me be the substance of your life. Let me be the love of your life. Oh, man. You know, you've turned your back on me. You've given yourself over to aesthetic and success and lust and all these things. And he's not like a mafia boss. He's not like, are you going to do this to me? (laughs) You're going to turn your back on me. That's not what it was. It was like I was sick, and he was like a mother offering me a, a bowl of soup. Let me be the substance of your life. I'll tell you this. If that time for me doesn't catalyze a a daily rhythm of meeting with this God that offers me as a substance of my life. I'll be bankrupt for another month or so. Please, please, friends. God is calling to you this morning, saying, first, go out somewhere, get alone, just take an hour. Go sit by the water, by the beach, and don't bring your phone, and don't say a word, and just let me speak to you. Strip the false self. Doesn't have to be three days like I did. Go, go sit by sunset cliffs and look out over the water and listen. Throw your phone in the ocean, maybe. I'm just, just a suggestion. And let God speak to you. Spend time with God. It will change your life. And if we can do this, and not by our own strength, but with God waiting there for us, saying, oh, oh, you finally made it. You're here. Ah, I've been waiting for you. Let me fill you with love and power and grace and mercy and peace. And the world might actually have a shot. I mean, it's, things are interesting. I have no idea. I have no prophecies of doom. I don't know what's going to happen. But God says he's coming to restore it all. God says, oh, man, you care about this thing? You care about this justice in this world happening? You care about this right being made wrong? No one cares more than I do. No one cares more than I do. And so I, I, I'm going to close here. But I commend you, in God's patience and in his grace, find a specific time to get with God and do it all the time. Every day, once a day. If you're a, if you're a mom and you have 15 children, it feels like 15, but it's two. Then like, okay, they're going down for a nap, and I get it. Like, 
I get it because I do the same thing. If my kid goes down for a nap and maybe Alexa isn't there or like we don't have a nanny or babysitter or whatever, I'm like, oh, time to send emails. Ah, this is my only shot. And there's God going, okay, like, yeah, I get it. Emails are good. Like, neighbors needs you to respond to some emails right now. You got to, you know, schedule out this Sunday and what it's going to look like. But more than that, you need my power and you need my love. So just take 15 minutes here. And get down and just go, oh, yes, Lord, I love you. There's a, there's a rumor going around that the, the second teacher we talked about today, Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, there's a rumor going around that that guy is uh, very, very much alive <laughs> and very much present and very much offering grace and mercy this morning, and that if you call upon him today, his very spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus, might come and speak to you. And I don't mean tomorrow. I mean like now. I mean like here, now, this morning, might actually speak to you and catalyze for you a desire, an awakening to be like, okay, you know what? I do want to be with God. Because maybe as I'm talking, this guy isn't doing it for you. You're like, oh man, yeah, he's saying this stuff. I get it. But maybe you need a touch from the Holy Spirit to remind you like, oh, the very substance of my life should be God. And so we're going to come to a time of prayer together and then we'll come to scripture. But here, let's, let's read this together. The, the, the scriptures that conclude Oh, man, I searched for this, I searched for that, I found myself empty. What do we do with that? We run to Jesus. But the mentor, the mentor in this story, the one writing the book of Ecclesiastes, says this. Oh, and we'll say it together. You guys want to say it together? Okay. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And then this. Teacher. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So this morning, it's simple. Love God and love the person next to you. And we're going to do that. Why don't we stand together for a minute? And Angel, you can come up. We're going to sing together. But today, if you hear God's voice calling out to you and saying, I just want to spend some time with you, do not harden your heart. Don't come up with all the excuses that you've come up with in the past. It's just a thing. It doesn't matter. Meaningless, meaningless. iPad. So sorry. Um. Do not harden your hearts. <laughs> My brother's laughing at me, and if I look over there, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> Do not harden your hearts this morning. Some of you need a touch from God. Some of you need to be awakened to the very love of God. And if that's you this morning, uh, make it known to your neighbor. And what we're going to do is just break up two, three people. We're going to take a couple of seconds. Angel is actually going to kind of sing over us over our prayer and sing a song, you know, just to God and just allow the spirit to minister to your heart today as we pray. So find someone, anyone, someone you're comfortable with, someone you're not, and just pray for them. And this is what you're going to pray. Lord, awaken their heart to your love. 
with sincerity. Awaken their heart to your love that they might want to spend time with you, that they might want to be with you, that we might, as a people, see your face. And then say, in Jesus' name, amen, and we'll sing, and we'll come to the table together, and Dan will lead us in that. Go ahead.